0: Episode Nine of the Transport Full Blanket Now, Now, Now. The Transport by Alex Ames. You are listening to The Transport. A sci-fi military action thriller audiobook podcast, written and performed by Alex Ames. The music throughout the podcast is the song The Last True Boss by Kumiku, available on the freemusicarchive.org. CHAPTER TWENTY-NINE SINA Sina's HOLY SHIT coincided with Bristol's shout into the comm. ATTACK! 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 THREE O'CLOCK! But it was already too late. With horror, she watched as the gunners on Guard 1 and 2 slumped over. Gunshot's cracks echoed over the sound of the generators And a moment later, three white vapor trails streaked in at an incredible speed. Even before Sina's brain could process the word rocket launcher, the deadly payloads hit their marks in front of the transport. Even in the bright daylight, the explosions of the Humvee and the transporter were blinding, fragments hitting the bulletproof plexiglass screen of her command cabin, black mushroom clouds and a lot of fire surrounding. Defense position, everyone, Sina shouted into her microphone, still ducking. Inch it, inch it. The behemoth moved towards the burning racks fast and running over them would damage the MMTU's undersides. Crap, stop it, Ivan, down to zero. Stopping sequence, Gorsuch screamed from the driver's unit, ten yards closer to the mayhem than Sina. Mech came on. Holy moly, the rear guards have been hit, all of them. An attack on both ends. This was not some nutcase, this was coordinated. Sina's thoughts ran overdrive. A coordinated attack on US soil? Gherkin came on from the right side of the transport. There are two groups of shooters, one o'clock and four o'clock. They are incoming. Sina followed the line of gherkins one o'clock and saw a group of people, what the hell, civilians, standing up about 150 yards out in the desert, unshouldering what looked like bazookas. One of them, a stubby woman in a red sweater, jerked up, her arms flaying, red mist visible. The source was shots from near the burning Humvee wreck. Unbelievable, Bristol was alive, thrown clear from the exploding car fighting back. He lay spread-eagled on the clear desert ground behind the rover of a ripped-off truck wheel. For a badass army ranger like Bristol, the location of the attacker was in no-miss distance. But the other attackers immediately vanished from sight, when they realized the return fire, ducking into their desert shelters. She heard Bristol's voice over the intercom. Two attack nests, five hundred feet south of transport. Mayday, Mayday, Tin Can is compromised. She realized that he didn't talk to his team because his team was gone. The words were targeted at the satellite comm link to the situation room in the Pentagon and the helicopters. Black smoke from the burning truck wrecks that had held their guards engulfed the area, blocking Bristol's line of fire. From her elevated control cabin, Sina saw the helicopter taking a turn and then speeding up towards the attack nest. No doubt the other heli on the rear end of the transport was doing the same. Both were equipped with deadly M134 Gatling guns. Able to spit out up to 100 rounds a second, laser-guided sight, the gunner couldn't do wrong. Sina prayed it to engage and she suddenly felt pretty exposed up on her control perch high over the transport units. Chapter 30. Herbert. Herbert marveled at the destructive result for a second before his survival instinct set in and brought him back to reality. The two rear guard transporters went up in debris and flames. No one could have survived the overkill. A perfect score. His team reloaded their rocket launchers, just in case that the helicopters made it through the next five seconds. Surface to air was not the best use case for a javelin rocket. Additionally, the helicopters were said to have countermeasures on board. But if the blanket failed to work, they would need all the firepower they could get. He heard Smitty's voice in the calm, comm, commanding calmly. Total blanket, total blanket, now, now, now! A lot of their plan counted on the blanket working properly. Herbert had tested it about a year ago on the flatbed of his pickup truck and it had worked on the cars nearby and his car radio. But it was untested on earth for its maximum range. The defense team's calculation had declared it effective up to 100 miles. Now would be the time to find out if they were right. The operator, back at the Legion Analytics headquarter, cranked the Blanket's output up to the maximum and hit the activation switch. And how it worked. CHAPTER 31 Sina. From the start of the attack until now, not more than ten seconds had passed. Bristol cursed over the open intercom and the smoke now made it almost impossible to see anything from down there. She could barely make out that Bristol was crawling towards the burning wreckage of the troop carrier to get proper cover. His crawl looked askew, he looked hurt. Suddenly only Sina's elevated command cabin and the hulk of the object stuck out of the black cloud, the smoke steadily filling the area. Someone in the situation room finally had figured out that something was wrong. As the communication equipment had been located in the front troop transporter, they had patched themselves through to the tactical comm channel. Tin can! Situation! Attack! In the background, someone screamed, maybe from the DC command center. The guard vehicles are all gone, all gone. Sina knew that her team would still prepare defense mode, scrambling for a helmet and grabbing the weapons. She pressed her team channel. Evacuate, emergency gear, weapons. We assemble on the left side under the cover of the transport. Then she remembered that they were in the middle of the desert. And water, don't forget water, copy. The confirmation from her team never came. The helicopter bee-lined towards the attack nest's position like an angry wasp engaging any second now. No warning. Sina jerked forwards as the whole transport suddenly came to an immediate stop. Luckily, the whole machinery had already been in crawl mode, shutting down in controlled fashion. But even at a yard per minute, the sudden stop could be felt by everyone and heard as the object's cradle beams made brutal and unearthly sounds of metal screeching and bending followed by a series of slow, rhythmic creaks each MMTU unit feeling the tug of giant forces. All of Sina's screens went black in sync with the sudden stop even the emergency control light that ran on battery and independently of the core processing units and the panicky chatter on comm all had died. Sina ducked and looked behind her. If Max saw the same effect, he would be blind too. But where Sina's wheel had stopped moving, the load was still up there, forced down by ever-present gravity. Any critical shift in the foundations could result in the object sliding out of its cradle, crushing the MMTUs like a foot stomping on the cockroach. Or it would break free right on top of her. Squashed like a cockroach by an alien technology. What a way to go. Sina checked for the helicopter. When would it fight back with its cannons? To her horror, She saw the helicopter no longer in regular flight. Instead, twisting around in quicker and quicker succession, it lost its altitude and crashed into the rocky desert ground, halfway between transport and attacker's position. The explosions sound rolling over. The delayed sound of a second explosion arrived from the rear end of the transport. Helicopter number two, no doubt. All was deadly silent, no generators, no electronics, no air-condition. The object still shook and creaked in its foundation, rocking the MMTU combination. She held her breath, praying, and then the black smoke from the burning vehicles engulfed also Sina's position, turning her day into night. Chapter 32 – Leo A pocket search of the unconscious four dealers gained Eva and Leo a gun and a switchblade knife each. It's a start, right? Leo weighted his pistol. His car stood relocated around the next street corner. He had his doubts that it would be there for long, but Eva had insisted. We need – yeah, lots of, I know – Leo said. Eva smiled at Leo and glanced at her phone. Your mother is texting you, or are you telling her that you are about to round up the veracity drug scene for kicks after you escaped your workplace zombie apocalypse? She stood by the curb without answering, typing away on her phone. After Eva's dealer cleanup, the corner was deserted, everyone probably watching how the conflict played out from a safe place, no police came. Once in a while a car passed, drivers throwing nervous looks at them and the four people on the ground. Leo removed sweat from his face. The sun was burning down mercilessly and he moved into the shade of one of the house entries. Two cars could be heard, high revving engines long before they could be seen. Then, Two U.S. muscle cars came racing onto Yucca Street, a red Camaro followed by a blue-and-white striped Mustang, both filled with identical-looking dudes dressed in tank tees and tattoos. Eva glanced at Leo, who had moved to her side. White supremacists? she asked. By American, skinheads or less, white skin, bad driving habits. When you see an '88 tattoo or a swastika, you're good. He checked whether the confiscated gun was held tight by the waistband behind his back. The two cars stopped behind each other about ten yards away six white dudes staring at Eva and Leo, and the four dead street peddlers, the motor gargling. This goes down how? Leo whispered. I engage. You stay out of the way. Eva instructed and walked over to the first car, the Camaro. Two guys in front, one folded in the back. Various sizes and shapes, all scary dudes. ADA tattoos on knuckles and swastikas on bare shoulders, or in one case, on the top of the skull. Eva smiled as she ran through Leo's supremacist checklist. Her hands were empty and slightly raised, as if to say, hey, hey, guys, no threat. The backseat Nazi had a handgun on his lap. The passenger side held a sawn of a riot shotgun pointing downwards. The driver appeared to be still in driving mode, both hands visible on the top of the wheel, gun probably hidden behind the waistband of his jeans. Leo took a few steps back, looking for a good cover. It was like a scene out of High Noon, without the country or the western. Eva unbuttoned the top of her shirt, then another button, and slowly leaned her upper body down through the open Camaro window, both hands clearly visible through the lowered side window. Glad you came quickly. She dazzled them with a smile. The interior smelled of greasy food, gun oil and smoke. Six pairs of eyes, had a hard time tearing their eyes away from the generous dosage of cleavage. The guy folded in a narrow bench actually leaned forward, struggling to get the best view. I need your guns. Do you have more? she asked. The passenger seat dude closest to her did the mistake to look at the driver, who seemed to be the leader. With her left, Eva grabbed the trigger hand of the dude, moved her head out of the cab and jerked once. The riot gun worked as advertised, a deadly weapon at close range. Even though it was pointed downwards, the pallet load of steel balls slammed into the car floor, deformed into metal shards and ricocheted inside the cab like a swarm of deadly bees. The dude had his lower legs shredded into a bloody painful mass. The other two inhabitants were slightly luckier both blinded by the returning pellets that punctured their eyeballs and gave them various cuts on face and arms. All three started to scream. Eva felt the pellets tear at her leather jacket, her left hand changed her grip and fished the shotgun out of the window of the Camaro. She clicked the reload mechanism and pointed the gun at the front window of the second Nazi car where three men frantically tried to bring their own weapons into position. The riot gun roared again and blinded the front window with a whoosh and the glass, mostly held, transformed into a mesh of sparkling diamonds. Eva took four quick steps to the side, becoming a moving target while she reloaded again. A second shot sent the glass shards flying alongside the deadly pallet load. Eva jumped forward, dropped the shotgun, rolling over her shoulder, staying low. Not a second too late, the three Mustang passengers must have ducked the onslaught from the exploding shards and started firing blindly through the gaping hole at the spot where they had seen Eva last. Leo saw them removing security glass crystals from their faces, distracted, not really aiming, just shooting for the shooting's sake. Their mistake. Eva ended her role, the ex-drug dealer's pistols in her hand, came up beside the Mustang, outstretched right hand through the intact side window, shooting the passenger seat supremacist in the head, moving the gun just a little, giving another deadly headshot at the back seat passenger, eventually settling her aim at the remaining third passenger on the driving seat. Don't move, stop firing, Eva shouted at the remaining driver. Leo, cover him. Leo had ducked for cover but had watched in awe the surreal scene playing out before him. The thought help Eva forced itself into his brain and he jumped up, crossed the street and pointed his own revolver at the driver of the rear car who had dropped his weapon and had raised his hand. Crystals of glass still in his hair and on his shoulders. His comrades blood over his right side shock-faced by the impossible reversal of fortune. When Leo was in position, Eva quickly walked back to the Camaro where the maimed and bloody passengers sat slumped over, not moving, and driver and backseat guy still screaming, holding their shredded eyes, blood streaming underneath their hands. Eva shot both of them in the head and silence fell over the scene. Leo felt neither shock nor pity nor outrage. The whole scene from the minute they had arrived at the street corner had been totally surreal. Eva threw the old revolver into the back of the car and came back. She buttoned up her shirt again, opened the driver door and kneeled down. The scared Nazi raised his hands up to the car roof and shrunk back in his seat. Got weapons? Shot? shot shotgun! Oh, one on the back seat, one beside Joey. Shit, Joey, you bitch! He was the man with the swastika tattoo on his bald head. Got some more? Trunk! He moved his right index finger in slow motion towards the Camaro. Eva leaned into the Camaro, popped the trunk. From the corner of his eyes, Leo saw her leaning over, showing her perfect legs and behind as she inspected the interior. She straightened up, a mean-looking short-barreled machine gun in one hand and two loaded magazines in the other. She gave Leo a dazzling, sweet smile that made him almost forget her killing spree. Lots of weapons. About time, Leo remarked, still guarding the only surviving Nazi. Then he noticed that Eva did not answer, but stood frozen as if in thought, the smile still on her face. Eva? This was turning scary. Had she been hit? A delayed shock reaction to the fight? And even scarier, Eva slowly tipped over forward, her whole body rigid the whole way down to the ground. She fell onto her weapon. Leo made a pained face. That must have hurt. That bitch of yours just died? The Nazi asked. Hi, Alex Ames here. Sorry for the little interruption. This story will continue momentarily. If you like a good thriller, check out my 2020 novel COVID Trouble. COVID Trouble is a novel in my ongoing troubleshooter series featuring the corporate troubleshooter Paul Trouble. Covid trouble takes place in Paris, France after the first lockdown of 2020 just when life seems to normalize again during the worldwide life-threatening pandemic and France is getting ready for some well-earned summer vacations. Someone is poisoning supermarkets with the virus. Is it a lunatic? Is it a terrorist act? Paul Trouble will find out. A lot of bullets will fly, there are car chases, gunfights, rooms full of dead people, deadly fire traps and many, many, many ways to die. COVID Trouble is available as ebook at most online retailers and as paperback at Amazon and some other e-tailers. Check it out, it's a ride. It's inspired by the current events of that crazy, crazy year 2020. COVID Trouble is the name. Alex Ames, the author. That being said, by the book. And now, let's jump back into the transport. Chapter 33. Charles. Bristol's shouts over the intercom filled the room. We see explosion heat patterns, the seemingly unaffected, quiet voice of the console operator declared. I am overriding the optical and infrared sensor readings. Get the others on the line, Argos shouted to whoever monitored the other side of the video conferences. Someone blew up the front and rear protection IED or RPG or an airstrike an eerily calm voice from an unknown operator on the line. We can't exclude air strike, no aircraft in perimeter except our own protection forces. Give me an image, give me an image, Charles cried and jumped up from his seat. The white glow of the screen was slowly replaced by a quivering image that showed the transport again. Now huge clouds of smoke were blocking the long-range observation. Short bursts of the helicopter tech-channel communication came over the sound system. Bogies at your five o'clock, one mile, acquired, engage mode. The helicopter came into the vertical view of the long-range eye, heading to an unseen place further up on the screen. Damn it, what's going on? System fa- The connection broke off, and the image turned black. Charles turned to his operators. What was that? Another explosion? We lost connection to the high-altitude reconnaissance. We're not receiving the drone signal anymore, the operator said. A slightly panicked look on his face, furiously typing. Comlink is down and the high-altitude image is down. Just received. Drone is offline. Its operators are disconnected. Any other down links? Someone asked. Negative, the operator replied. We lost the links. That's all I can confirm at this point. All other links to birds tasked with other observations are working. Just the New Mexico links are gone. A cacophony of voices in the background as the involved parties try to make sense of things happening. Can you switch to another bird? Charles asked. Another operator looked at his screen and spoke quietly to another party on his headset. Then, whoever was pressing the important switches gave some sort of positive answer and the operator's face lit up. I give you Sierra 41 in 5, 4, 3... The central screen showed again an image from the desert, panning in high speed over an unspecified landscape. The camera is still acquiring the coordinates. We will only be able to track it for about 40 seconds, then the angle becomes too flat. The transport was shown again, the image quivering, no comparison to the previous quality. It showed the surroundings from an extreme side angle, filming from the rear side of the transport. A lot of smoke engulfed most of the view. Zoom in on the attackers, Charles commanded. Upper right sector, about a 100 yards from the cleared area. Got it, the operator said calmly and clicked on his computer. 30 seconds to signal drop. The image panned again quickly over the desert ground and stopped adjusting on a small group of civilians with heavy weapons who were just leaving an improvised camouflage shelter. Civilians. And no doubt, these were no militia, radicals in hobby camouflage. Despite the bad quality, the video showed overweight, business-casually-dressed average Americans straight out of a business office, armed to the teeth. What the hell? Charles shouted as the image started to vibrate badly and finally showed only desert landscape flying by. Sierra 41 is out of range. Tango 12 will be in position in five minutes, said the controller in his eerily calm voice. With all of the communication to the transport cut off, The military organized a virtual situation room within minutes. A variety of senior officers were patched in through video and a minute later another screen sprung to life and the president appeared. Status, Dr. Naumann, the president growled. Charles cleared his throat. Where was a glass of water when you needed it? Sir, it appears that the transport has been attacked by an unknown party. We have lost contact and we have difficulties establishing visuals. Two surveillance... He saw the operator lift three fingers. Three surveillance links have stopped working, so we are basically blind and deaf for the next five minutes. How is this possible? Have our signal capabilities been compromised? The president asked a question to the round. We've had AVAX in the air too, right? The AVAX are gone, Mr. President, as are the jets enforcing the outer perimeter, another officer with many stars on his shoulders in another situation room explained. It appears to be only related to the transport, but the damage assessment is ongoing as we speak. What is happening down there? Last visuals have indicated that various explosions took place, Ranger Argos explained. It appears like a direct attack on our vehicles that protected the transport. We got a glimpse at the unsubs, an unknown party in the vicinity, civilians. Charles added, and they look domestic. You mean a domestic attack by extremists? The president asked. The image was blurry, but they did not look like extremists of any kind. No uniforms, not even a common dress code. As absurd as it sounds, they attacked us in casual wear. Ordinary people, men, women, big, small chinos, polos, pantsuits. And as if they belonged into an office and just stepped out for lunch to, to attack a military transport. Charles felt every eye on him. Had he just made a joke in the middle of a national crisis? But luckily Major Argos came to his support. Dr. Norman is correct. That had been my impression too. Either a brilliant cover or something we are not aware of. Some exertion of influence. Or a hostage situation. What about our air support? Can you send them closer for the direct visual? The Air Force General spoke up. No contact to any aircraft in the area. Helicopters, jets and the FX all quiet. Two additional units that we scrambled immediately after the attack are gone as well. He let his voice trail. We presume they all crashed. So not only we have an unexplained systematic equipment and communication failure, we also can't operate in the vicinity of the transport? Another voice asked from the Situation Room in the White House. That's about what we know. Dr. Norman. What is their objective? Someone wants to steal tin can? The President asked. Charles shook his head. What is there to steal? At 2,500 metric tons, we are the only nation on the planet with the equipment to transport the object from A to B. It will not leave the New Mexico desert. Is it possible that this effect we are seeing is caused by tin can? Charles was silent for a second, all eyes on him. Only three people in the call had the full knowledge of tin can. Possible, he conceded, You know what I know about Tin Can. The only thing that changed after almost 70 years is the fact that the object is in the open again. What is this Tin Can, anyway? the Air Force colonel asked. And why would it have such a devastating effect on our technologies and weapons? Charles kept silent as it was ultimately the president to reveal. The president was about to speak when the national security advisor leaned by his side and whispered something into his ear, behind a lip-reading protective hand. The president gave a curt nod. Maybe later. For now, Tin Can's classification will remain on the current level. Another whisper, another nod. Charles, you are the gatekeeper. You have the lead. Gather intelligence of what happens in New Mexico. Resolve this mess locally. We take it from here. Gentlemen, provide this man with whatever he needs. Emergency chiefs of staff session in 15 minutes. We move alert level to DEFCON 3. Nuna, you inform China and Russia that we have a domestic situation so that they won't get trigger happy when we light up. Let's get everyone moving. There was a short... Shocked silence, the discussion was over with a surprise ending. The officers nodded. What else could they do? When Charles did continue to look onto his screen, the president repeated, I mean you too, Norman. You mean New Mexico? Charles asked. No, I mean effing Paris, France, the president growled. The monitor mercifully turned black. Charles settled back in his chair, He hadn't been aware how tense he had been during the conference. The president showing nerves was probably the best indication of what was going on in his mind. An alien spaceship, on domestic ground, off the radar, attacked by office workers. All communications lines cut. God knew what would happen if the spaceship got away. But how could it? Dr. Naaman, the Air Force colonel still in the video conference asked, any instructions? Charles looked at him and at the other monitors. He was the boss. You heard the president. My ass is wanted out there. I need a lift. A-S-A-P. This is it for this week's edition of The Transport, the sci-fi action thriller written and performed by Alex Ames. If you liked what you just heard, leave a comment in whatever platform you downloaded or listened to the podcast. If there are stars, star me, help me spread the good. And again, my shameless self-promoting plug, if you liked it so far and can't bear the suspense, buy the book. If you can bear the suspense, buy the book. And another shameless self-promotion, if you liked what you heard and think that many of your potential customers might be listening to this podcast too, feel free to contact me at alex.ames.writing at gmail.com or send me a private message on Twitter or Instagram at Alex Ames writing one word the middle section of this podcast could be reserved for you and that's it for real wherever you are whoever you are thank you take care i hear you next time this is alex ames this was the transport over and out